0: And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question.
1: Yeah, great question. You are the part,
0: and you do not need anybody's permission.
1: Great question. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. That is literally a brilliant question. If this
0: is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OutOfLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host Ryan. Tonight, our focus will be about psychology. We're not going to go so much into metaphysics, but we have one of the world's top mental health professionals. Really excited about this. Before we start our interview. Have any of you been watching the NHL playoffs this year? It is awesome. The competition is so intense. And the difference between hockey and baseball is that baseball, you break a nail and you're out for 10 games. And in hockey, you get your arms and legs ripped off and they just stitch you back up and you don't miss a shift. But playoff hockey has been super, super intense. And this year, you had a team called the Tampa Bay Lightning. They scored more points during the regular season and think anyone else in history, but during the playoffs, they got swept in four games straight. Major, major upset. And that reminded me about something, that there are certain people that play well during the regular season of life. You know, they can push all the buttons when things are okay, when there's no pressure, but how do they respond during a crisis situation? How do they respond when they are needed the most? I think that I aspire to be a playoff person I want to be there and make the decisions when it counts because I think that during those crisis situations or during the situations where you need to be your best, those decisions outweigh all the other regular life decisions by far. Not to say that the regular season of life doesn't count, but the ones that happen that you need to make during the crisis situations, I think those have the ones that have the major lasting effects. When it comes to marriage, I would consider myself a very subpar husband during the regular season of marriage. I'm under 500. Can I fix something around the house? No. Do I remember to take out the garbage? No. Am I a good chef? No. Do I look attractive in the morning? No. Well, maybe if my wife has four or five shots of vodka, then maybe I have a chance, but no. But If there's a situation where my where somebody needs to go to the emergency room, where the puppies need something, I think that the key decisions, the big decisions, I'm okay. I think I actually do. I thrive during those times, but that's just me. In your development, as you continue to grow and expand your perception, I think one of the benefits is that by having access to different information, by being more open minded, when there is a societal crisis, you. You're probably going to be one of the playoff people. You're going to be one of those people that are going to respond well during a crisis situation because you all have access to information that other people didn't or you were more aware of things that other people weren't. And if you meditate, I believe that the more you meditate, the more grounded you are. I know that when I'm able to do it in the rare occasions, I definitely feel more grounded and more at ease. So think about that, though. Think about the difference between a person who is a regular season person during life – and a playoff person in life. Uh, do whatever you want. Just just be happy. Uh, those are uh, my parting words of today. Let us begin tonight's program. Joining us now is Dr. Mark Goulston. He is a best-selling psychiatrist. He's got seven books. He's also a suicide prevention specialist for 25 years. And in the course of 25 years, none of his patients committed suicide. A little more about Dr. Goulston by going to his website, at markgoulston.com. Dr. Goulston, welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate uh, you booking me. Uh, My
0: my pleasure. We're going to cover a lot of different topics, and this is going to be one of the rare shows where at the end of the interview, our featured guest is going to recommend what mental institution I should be confined to for the rest of my life. So this is wonderful, Dr. Goulston. Thank you so much. I appreciate you in advance you doing that. So, uh, <laughs> well,
1: I, uh, I'm already looking through my Rolodex. Excellent, excellent.
0: <laughs> there are a lot of things that you've covered. I love a lot of your quotes and one of your quotes says that perpetually needy people suck the life out of you because no matter what you do for them, it's never enough. So if you are with someone who's very needy, what impact does that have on your psychological well-being? And is that person who's in your life, who's very needy, is that a reflection of who you are because that person
1: has shown up in your life? Um, Well, one of the challenges of needy people, and they're not bad people, but in this day and age, being needy sadly is the kiss of death in relationships. And it's because it feels like needy people are getting in under your skin and you can't get rid of them. But one of the ways in which needy people drive us crazy, and one of my books, my most recent book is called Talking to Crazy, How to Deal with the Irrational and Impossible People in Your Life. One of the things that all of these people that drive us crazy have in common is they frustrate us, anger us, and there's a point at which they enrage us. And at the point people enrage us, Unless we're, ha- unless we're someone who's happily happy with being enraged, unless we just love to be enraged, uh, most people aren't. What happens is when they enrage us, we can't think clearly, and our impulse is to eviscerate them. And that may not be who we like to think we are. So often, what we will do is we will do anything to get away from them, put a lid on it, because we're afraid that the next Uh, step is we're going to say something mean and cool which would give us immediate relief but then afterwards we'd feel guilty we'd feel ashamed and to be honest we'd feel scared because a lot of decent people really have trouble accepting something which I think you're aware of and it's called their shadow And, and and the shadow is the part of our personality and we all have it that we don't want to accept as part of our personality. And one of the deepest and darkest parts of our shadow that most people want to say doesn't exist, is sometimes, and I'm talking about decent people, sometimes the murderous rage, the desire for revenge, the desire to get even with people, the desire to delight in their being in pain, and, Uh, Since we are all human and we don't want to accept that about ourselves, we will go through all kinds of contortions uh, to stay away from that.
0: Does that make make sense? This makes sense. You're talking about processing shadows. So let's say, for example, you are an individual. You tend to avoid people who are needy. And you think about it this way. Maybe there's a logical reason behind it. Maybe because you say, you know what? I don't want to pull this person into my experience because I don't want to deal with the ramifications of absorbing their energy, knowing that it'll probably bring me down, knowing that it'll probably put me in a negative mood. I'm wondering, what's the difference between selectively choosing not to engage with a person who's comparing very needy, who's appearing to have a drain on your mental resources, and avoiding that person because you're avoiding a part of your shadow, because you're avoiding... You know, trying to come to terms with a part of your shadow because maybe that person is coming up to you to show you something, show you a part of yourself that you are denying. So again, this question is that what is the difference between avoiding that and actually just making a sound decision is to not engage someone because if you engage that person, maybe you're giving away too much of your energy and you're putting yourself in a weakened mental state because you are giving too much of yourself to that individual.
1: Well, I, I think a good question to ask ourselves when we're dealing with a difficult person or a needy person, um, am I taking something personally that's not meant personally? Uh, In other words, am I over so oversensitive to anyone uh, appearing needy that even people who are just legitimately needful or just asking for something gets to me? So so, I think it's important to pause and say, uh, "Am I overreacting? Another thing you can ask yourself is, to the best of my knowledge, is this person like this with everybody? If it turns out that this person is not like this with everybody, you know then you then you might want to look at yourself, so why is that occurring, why is that behavior occurring with me now, you might say. Well, Mark, it's because they can get away with it, with you. They're able to up until this point where you say no more. Uh, they can get away with being needy without you saying no or coming down on them. So yeah, I think it's sort of a uh, it's it's sort of a complicated kind of thing. Um, and as I said, it, it's it's sad because I mean there are some needy people that are just very manipulative. And I think those are the people that really exhaust us. But there are other people that are just they're just needing. Um,
0: well, I'll move to one of your other quotes. You say, perceiving is believing, misperceiving is deceiving, and worse yet, prevents achieving. I love this quote. So thank you for, for writing this. When you write misperceiving is deceiving, the first thing that comes to mind is cognitive dissonance on an individual. And on a massive scale, I always feel or conclude that a large numbers of people, they're not perceiving reality as the facts are laid out before them. not to say that I want them to perceive a reality that I wish them to have, but I think that there are things that are out there, at least on an individual and humanity collectively speaking level, which would give the impression that the reality that we're currently living in is not the way we are currently perceiving it for the most part. I always think there's a lot more out there, so... How is one able to perceive a true reality, know that they are perceiving something that is authentic, that is genuine, that is not coming from an external source which which is trying to manipulate them, which is trying to cover the wool over their eyes? And I ask that question to you knowing that one of the same factors involved could be the fact that a person on maybe a subconscious level does not wish to see reality for which it is in its truest form that on a deep level is committed more so to believing a lie about the reality?
1: Well, uh, that's a big question, Ryan. So um, uh, I like to share stories, so I hope the story will partially uh, respond to what you're saying. Uh, or, or you're going to say, well, you know, uh, no offense, Mark, but I perceive you to be a, a tangential. So uh, I, uh, here's, here's a little uh, background story about me. Um, I wrote an article called Outing My Inner Racist. And, uh, and what happened is I was an advisor on the O.J. Simpson trial to the prosecution in the, in the criminal trial. And after the uh, after the not guilty verdict, uh, people who are old and remember the trial will remember that African Americans rejoiced. You know, we finally we finally won one, and white people thought, "Oh, this was such an injustice." And again, I was an advisor to the prosecution, and and it felt like you couldn't get a fair trial, or like justice was stacked against you. So I went up to some of my African American friends, and I said. Uh, I said, this is awful. This is such an injustice. And I just put myself in your shoes, and, and I thought, have you ever felt this way? You know, that, it was, that the world was unjust, that you couldn't get a break? And uh, to a one, they said, that's all I've ever felt, Mark. And I said, it feels so awful. Why didn't you tell me it was so bad? And they said, because you didn't effing want to know. And they were right. I didn't want to know how bad it felt. And talking about shadows, I felt such a sense of shame. I felt that here was something that I conveniently was not just oblivious to, but I didn't want to know what blacks live with in terms of the injustices they've endured. So I try to take action to correct things after I've discovered I've had a misperception. So for three years, I was a co-host on an urban African-American edgy radio show. It's still on. It's on Dash Radio. It's called the Zo What Morning Show. It's on every Monday, 11 to 1, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Dash Radio, but that specific time. And, and I, lo- I love my co-hosts. And uh, and it's really edgy. I think they drop the F-bomb too often. But talk about perception and misperception. Uh, There was one episode, and I think there's even a clip on YouTube, and I said, oh, I just figured out why white cops will, will nearly always be racist against black men. And you know, and, and we developed a, you know sort of an affectionate regard. And so, Zo, the host, said, "Okay, Doc, lay it on us." And I, and so here's where we get into perception, misperception, and society. I said, "If I'm a white cop, and you're a black male, and I put myself in your shoes, and I know how poorly I've treated you." If I was you, I would be mad at me. And so I'm a white cop projecting on you that you must be angry at me because if I was you, I'd be angry at me. And so then what happens is I misperceive that. And then I look for reasons to confirm my bias. So if you look a little bit frustrated because I'm pulling you over and you know, you're frustrated that you you don't know if I have a reason to pull you over, I can say, oh, there you are. You're frustrated, you're angry. uh, I have a right to protect myself. And I said uh, to Zoe and his audience, which is largely African American, I said, until white people, especially white males who may be racist, until they can accept that they are projecting hostility on African American people, especially African American males, they're going to feel justified in preemptively uh, uh, being uh, hostile towards them in self-defense. So I know that's a long that's a long uh, story, but I hope it illustrates. No, it definitely illustrates. That... It's very helpful. Yeah, appreciate and. There... So, I I, I want to actually share something with you, a breakthrough I had. Would that be okay? Sure. Absolutely. Um, And I may turn this into a talk at some point. And, and, And the talk would be called Overcoming Never Feeling Good Enough. I think a lot of people can relate to never feeling good enough. And here's what I discovered. I thought never feeling good enough was about performance. I thought it was, you know, I wasn't performing well enough. I wasn't making enough money. I was measuring my my insides by everybody's outsides. And yet when I would achieve or make money, I still wouldn't feel good enough. It wouldn't last. And then I had this realization that, and this is my shadow, that the reason I never felt good enough was not that I wasn't uh, doing a good enough performance, it's because my there was something wrong with my goodness. And here's what I realized. Uh, I have a story that I tell over and over again about my trials and tribulations in med school. I actually dropped out of medical school twice, probably for untreated depression. And in my story, I talk about the Dean of Students who was like an angel who saved my life. But in the story, I ridicule the Dean of the school and when I tell the story, I say, yeah, the Dean of Students reached out to me and said, you better get in here. I, get a let- I have a letter from the dean of the school. And I was at a low point, Brian, a very low point. And I get in there and I read the letter. And the, and the letter says from the dean of the school who cares about money and they would lose matching funds if I took a leave of absence. So I read the letter. And when I give my talk, I read it in a sort of a, a ridiculing tone. I say, and the letter says, have met with Mr. Goulston. We discussed an alternate career, perhaps the cello. And I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. So I was miraculously passing courses so they couldn't kick me out. And for years, and I'm glad I'm going public on this. I kind of ridiculed the dean of the school as being clueless. But recently I realized the dean of the school was the one who saved my life. Because if I was him and I saw that there was a medical student who dropped out once, he was probably depressed, he comes back to medical school, wants to drop out again, I'd be thinking as the dean of the school who cares about funding the school, you know, we better cut our losses with him because it doesn't sound like he's ever going to finish. But I don't want him killing himself. So I'm going to refer him to the Dean of Students. And the Dean of Students, who for 40 years has been, in my mind, an angel who stepped in there and saw good in the future, goodness in me that I did not a future for me that I didn't. But, and so what I've taken to doing is apologizing in my mind to the Dean of the school. And I realize that there's a number of people in my life who maybe I felt hurt by or misunderstood by. Uh, and I have had a chip on my shoulder. But what's happening, Ryan, is now that I'm identifying those people and they've all died, I'm apologizing to them. I'm saying I'm sorry. And it's interesting because as I say that, something's changing inside me. And I think what it is, is by getting rid of that shadow, that misperception, that desire to retaliate and ridicule, and by actually apologizing because I was wrong, it's helping me to feel good enough in ways that, you know, just performing better wouldn't. So can you track any of that?
0: Oh, I think it, 100% 100% of it makes complete sense, and thank you. I think it was a wonderful, great response. And it's going to lead to another question, is that you're talking about shadow processing and talking about taking these things, these burdens off, and getting to this point where you, you have this assurance that you're good enough. Well, is that, from your perspective, the state of being that human beings should be naturally in? Should we naturally feel good enough? Should we naturally feel like we're strong enough and capable enough? Is there any factors that are in our society, that are in our communities, that are in our family, which tend to bring us down, which tend to pull us away from that natural state of being? And if so, why must it occur? Why can't we naturally just be in this blissful state and go about our lives in a happy manner? Why do we have to deal with all this, I don't know, BS
1: stuff that's out there? Well, I think part of it is uh, uh, that... When we are uh, hurt at a very young age, I mean, at maybe even as infants or young children, you know, it, as soon as we feel hurt, we immediately go into fear. And hurt and fear, we don't like. And then that crosses over into anger. And then anger can cross over into justice and a desire to retaliate, to get even. And uh, and then. And then not only just getting even in our minds, way deep in our unconscious, wishing bad things to happen to people, and taking delight in it. I mean, that's that's a pretty dark shadow. It's bad enough to wish bad things would happen to people, but actually taking delight in it. And I'm sharing this with you, Ryan, because anyone would know, who knows me would say, I would have never guessed that about you, Mark. You're, you're compassionate. You're empathic. You know you. I mean, you saved people's lives, you prevented suicide for 25 years based almost solely on compassion, pathetic I would never believe that you have this shadow. And so I think part of what it is, is that uh, I think that primal level of hurt and fear is so deep, it's almost like a primal trauma that we survive, but at our core, there's something that isn't solid. I'll I'll share something I'm going through. I I, I don't know. I'll certainly write at least a blog on this. I became a grandparent for the first time a little over a month ago. Congratulations. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, all these cliches you hear, you're not responsible for them and you can love them. And and I'll tell you what's happening is I, as I hold my grandson and I look into his eyes and, you know, he can sort of focus. He's beginning to make eye contact. And, and, uh, There's a part of me that I do a lot of projecting uh, and and I channel people, but a lot of my channeling is accurate. I mean, when I, when I dealt with suicidal patients, what I would channel is how they felt uh, they, they didn't want to kill themselves. They just wanted the pain to go away. I'd look in their eyes and what they were saying is, you know, I don't want to die. I don't want to kill myself. I just can't make the pain go away. And and uh And so I could see that, and I would lean into their pain so what i 'm doing with my grandson, and i 'm sure I you know most of this is delusional hallucination or whatever but i'm I'm imagining he's looking up at me and saying, uh, "Am I going to have a good life? Uh, am I going to have a job? Uh, am I going to be replaced by artificial intelligence He's not saying this he's a month old, but he's looking up at me. Uh, is my, life, is my life going to be safe? Uh, gee, you know, I, I, I haven't yet even figured out what my hands and legs are doing. I mean, I, I haven't reached the stage where I'm staring and mesmerized by my hand. So I'm totally powerless. And, you know, kind of like when your pet, your, your dog is in pain and stares at you, can you make it go away? And so I'm just imagining, uh, I'm saying, what if that infant as he's looking up and, and, and my, my daughter and son-in-law are just amazing, but what if he's looking up, helpless, powerless, feeling pain, and what he sees in a mother father's eyes is, uh, you know, can you stop crying already? Would you finish the bottle? I got a spinning class to go to. Would you, uh, and, 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 and what if when that infant who's looking up and trying to connect because he can't make, he doesn't know what the pain is, He's at least trying to connect with you. What if he gets ignored, he gets abused? Um, and he internalizes that. And, uh, and so I, I'm sure you're probably aware of Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson you know, talked about the different steps to psychosocial development. And the very basic first step is something called basic trust versus basic mistrust. So I'm imagine what if he looks up and the world is getting angrier, impatient with him. He's not—he's not trying to, you know, have colic. He's not trying to be hungry just to be annoying. He's not trying to uh, crap uh, and need changing just because he has nothing better to do. And so I could see, geez, depending on what he takes in, he could begin to feel: can I trust the world, or, or do I distrust the world? Wow. And then when I'm, th- you, you follow me? And then, yeah. and then what I'm thinking is, uh, probably in six months, I actually wrote a blog. And I said, uh, uh, when we're born, we're half baked with nature. But the first six months is what it takes to be fully baked with nurture. Because in about six months, you can at least move around, you, you know, your arms and legs, you're starting to feel a little mastery of your environment. And but what if in that first six months, when you're powerless, you're blamed for it, you're ignored about it. And so, and then imagine, uh, it, it's almost like this primal wound. Often I talk to people about the rings of a tree. And if you think of the rings of a tree, every ring is a year. And, then, and it tells the whole history of a tree when you, when you see a tree and it tells the character of a tree. Some of those rings, oh there was a fire then Oh, some of those rings oh it oh, looks like uh, there was big rainfall but what if you look at the core of the tree and the first few rings are just all eaten out i mean the tree somehow survives but it doesn't have a great core so imagine that that's what happens in our personalities and then we race into achievement and uh And I wrote a blog, I think it's still up there, uh, psychology today maybe. And the blog was, why is it that so many high achievers feel unfulfilled? And what I talked about was something called the syndrome of disavowed yearning. What that means is if way back, what if way back when my grandson wanted to connect, was reaching out when he's feeling helpless, wanting to connect so he can have basic trust. But what if nobody's connecting with him or people are yelling at him, get them bet already. And so he has basic distrust. And what if he discovers that if he achieves something, he, gets, he puts a smile on mom or dad. Oh, mom or dad are smiling. Oh, maybe they'll connect with me. Jeez, I'm achieving more. And it seems like they're connecting with my achievement. They're not, achieve, they're not connecting with me. Wow, I'm a human doing. So. Okay, so that's I, pretty good.
0: I want to ask you this. That's pretty good, because in the same way we're, we're at the, we we people often talk about the um, millennial generation or the generation that have been helicopter parents. So is there a point where maybe the parents are, are are you know interacting too much or smiling too much or maybe they're at a point where hey, you know what, maybe ease well, off. That,
1: that's that's not quite as bad, but it's okay. terrible because see what happens is if helicopter parents are really not, connect, they're over connecting by projecting onto their children. Oh, as soon as a child feels something, oh, I better rush in and make it better because I just love him or her so much. Now, I, 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 I think it is good to connect with them, but you don't wanna connect so deeply that when they have to interact with the world, who's not gonna connect with them like that at all, you're setting them up for real disappointment. It's like I used to, I used to, I used to give talks at preschools and you're gonna say, you'll understand why I'm, they never asked me to do this anymore. I say, I say, you know, something to keep in mind when you're there hovering over your child and making everything better for them at the same moment, or, or if they're doing something and you're bailing them out from the consequences, something to keep in mind when they're doing that to your just lovable little, little daughter or son, is that the same moment that you're bailing them out from the consequences of their actions and learning, at the same exact moment, there's roughly 10 million, give or take a million people, your son or daughter's exact age somewhere in the world, learning uh, to face the consequences of their actions. And they're becoming stronger and resilient. And one day, 20 years from now, that person's going to be your, boss, your daughter or your son's uh, boss, and they're going to fire them.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Well, Dr. Wilson, I have to reveal something to you and to our listeners right now. I don't have any human children yet, but I do have uh, two fur children, two puppies, and I am a helicopter puppy parent because if the dogs. They they start having a dream and they have a the bad dream. I'm the first person over there grabbing them, singing them a song, giving them treats, rubbing their belly. I mean, I, I'm pretty awful. I am a I'm definitely a helicopter a puppy parent for sure. And
1: yeah, well, when you're taking them on a hike, don't don't let them get lost in the wilderness. No the way, no, no. They'll the last the, nano they'll be looking for. <laughs> they'll be looking
0: for their electric blanket. <laughs> oh, <they're cool> <laughs> There's so many other topics that you've covered, especially when it comes to speaking. And you talked about how to win people over. You speak to 400 plus CEOs, managers all across the country, your world, talking about what it takes to be very successful. And um, I just started watching this really fascinating documentary. It's called The um, a, a Fall of a Company Called Theranos. And it was this, a CEO named Elizabeth Holmes. She 19 years old, started this company. I get, long story short, they were going to revolutionize how uh, you analyze blood samples. So they were going to put these machines and all these stores and against cvs where in a matter of hours you, you could take a small sample of blood and instantaneously find out what was wrong and get all the diagnosis well long story short it turns out the data was fraudulent but at the time everyone was saying that this person miss holmes was this visionary she was compared to steve jobs she was able to get all these people on board and i find this really fascinating because even though she had a company that did not meet the data in any way, shape, or form, did not have an authenticity to it, she still convinced people that she was the next Steve Jobs. So I find that really interesting. And what is it about a person? How can they present themselves as a Steve Jobs? How can they present themselves as a visionary and convince others that they themselves are a visionary even if they don't have the product to back it up or maybe they'll have it in the future?
1: Well, there's a... Uh, You know, there's a certain amount of uh, psychopathy uh, going on in that person. In other words, there's a part of them that actually feels entitled uh, to make their own rules. And many of these people will actually pass a lie detector test because there's something inside them that says if I feel something or I want something, I'm entitled to it. And and what they have is uh, one of the things Steve Jobs had is something called the reality distortion field. What that meant is they can speak to you in such a convincing way that you believe anything they say. Now I don't want to get into politics because you uh, you don't want to talk about that. But one of the ways, why is it that a reality distortion field works? If you look around you, there's a lot of people that feel doubt. But, you know they doubt their lives, they doubt themselves. And when you can be so clear about what you're saying, people bond to that clarity. They bond to that certainty and they become fixated to it. And they become so fixated to it, they don't even care about the facts. Now, why do they become so fixated? I, and I'm gonna try and uh, blend in what we talked about 10 minutes ago. Remember, we talked about the infant who couldn't bond connect, you know, safely to mom or dad. And so the infant then goes about trying to achieve things. But way down deep, that infant has a real hunger to connect, because at their core, uh, they're, they're unstable. So if you take a number of people who feel unstable, who way down deep in the, in the core of their personality, have self-doubt about everything, or doubt about whatever, You take someone who just seems supremely confident about everything they're saying and you connect with them. And one of the problems, and this is why demagogues seem to rule so easily, is once you fixate on that person who on the surface is saying, I'm here for you, I'm gonna save your life. We're gonna have a great future together. Uh, It feels like such relief to bond to that person that you, you don't question what they're saying afterwards, because do you follow me? If you, if you unbond from them, you get thrown back into the chaos of that helplessness, powerlessness, just being small and by yourself. Does that make sense?
0: It makes sense and...
1: Yeah, and, 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 and people are very uh, and, and, and human nature is kind of like that. you know when you're really uncertain about something, you fixate on whoever it is, or whatever it is, that's going to get you out of that. And it's tough to break, it's tough to break that fixation.
0: Dr. I would like to ask you a question about, I don't know if this is a proper term, but generational psychological conditioning that goes from generation to generation. And I would define that as a way that maybe for thousands of years in human history, there's always been this notion that we need to have a particular leader, that we need to follow a protocol, that there's leaders, and even though in some instances in certain countries, they may not call that leader a king, but they'll refer to them as a president, or they'll have this idea that you know they are being, they have leaders that will kind of regular things for them. This idea that collectively speaking, every individual could do things on their own, that there is not need, that there's not need to be a leader, is that possible? Is that something that is uh, available to happen within, the con- within um, human psychology because it seems that if certain concepts are pushed upon humanity for generations and they happen for thousands of years and those ideals take a long time to take hold what is it going to take or what does it take for a major shift in collective uh, psychology to happen for a major shift where a, a perceived psychological um, ideal that is been in the mindset for thousands of years, rooted in there for thousands of years, to suddenly shift. What does it take for something like that to happen? I'm sorry if
1: I um,
0: said too much. No, that's fine.
1: That's fine. That's fine. You know, um, there are people who function best by living inside the box. They like predictability, they like routine, and they're uncomfortable to think outside the box. And there are some people who are very uncomfortable living inside the box. They find it too restrictive, too confining. And, uh, and, and here's, here's the problem is that if you, uh, and I make a distinction between leaders and managers. A manager, shall we say, who lives inside the box And and focuses on results and performance, which you need. I mean, the leader can't basically get anything done on his or her own. You need managers and the people working for the managers. But a manager basically looks where he or she's going, it's focused on inside the box. A leader is someone who goes where they're looking. So a manager uh, looks where they're going, confined by rules. But a leader is someone who goes where he or she is looking. And, and it's that leader who can see beyond the horizon. So if you think of Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, one of the reason we tolerate their outrageous behavior is because they can see into the future. And there's something exciting about someone who can see into the future. And that doesn't excuse their being abusive and obnoxious but we give them a pass because they're our ticket to the future. And I think you need both. I think the challenge though, is can you find a visionary who can see into the future beyond our immediate, near-term and even long-term needs for something even beyond that? And, and, and can you get leaders like that who don't get so full of themselves that they can sometimes delude themselves? They can sometimes think uh, uh, I don't have to play by any rules and then sometimes they can become dangerous
0: I see it happening, he's just reading some of the works by Robert Greene, just see how some people teach it in around Dr. Golston in your life, what have been two instances where you had a major shift in your perception of reality, if you're putting aside the thing that we talked about earlier with shadow, but two two instances in your life we had a major shift in reality that maybe caused you to challenge all other beliefs in your life and I'm just curious how you responded and how this uh, one or more changes forever changed your perception of reality going forward.
1: Well I did sort of allude to it uh, and probably the The greatest change in my life, and and I'll go into a little more detail. Um, So I I don't think I grew up with that core of connection. And so uh, I made it to medical school, but then I hit a depression. And I think my depression was not treated. So I took a leave of absence, worked in blue-collar jobs to get my mind back because I was highlighting every book. Uh, they were all yellow, but I couldn't retain what I read. And I did blue collar jobs, which I love. I sometimes miss the simplicity of them. And then I I came back and started again. Uh, that was after I uh uh, uh or, or I I asked for a second leave of absence. I came back and then and then it happened all again. That's when I you know I, I interacted with the dean of the school. But the dean of students, I want to drill down into that because it really changed everything. I think my approach to life was I could be very sarcastic and cynical, a total cover-up for insecurities. And I think what happened is when that dean of students showed me that letter that said uh, that the promotions committee was going to ask me to withdraw, I said to the dean of students who cared about students, I said, what does this mean? And he said, You're being kicked out. And it was like a gunshot wound. And so what happened is literally I just I went, Whoa. And it was my good fortune that I was too far gone to be sarcastic and say, they can't do that to me. I'm passing everything. I was too far gone. It was also my good fortune that I didn't get overly pathetic and start saying, Oh, what am I going to do? How can they do this? It just looked like a I felt like a gunshot wound and I know what that feels like is 10 years ago, I had a perforated uh, abdomen and almost died. And so imagine this, if you come from a background of, you know, kind of conditional, somewhat critical, whatever, you know, someone who, and I came from a background, my parents were decent, hardworking, but my mindset was you're only worth what you can do. If you can't do anything you're pretty worthless and that's not an unusual mindset for a lot of people so when he said you've been kicked out i think i prayed you uh, are you tracking with me ryan yes can you picture it? and so imagine this uh, uh if he had said to me well uh if i can do anything for you uh give me a call i would have gone back to my you know apartment and Maybe that would have been the end of me. But instead, I'm not making eye contact with him. And he said, and he says this, Mark, you didn't screw up because you're passing everything, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think one day the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. So I start to cry with, uh, I don't, I don't understand this kindness and compassion. I just don't get it. And he said, yeah, I think the school would be glad they gave you another chance. And then he said, but even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, which is what I felt I was capable of at that time, doing nothing. Imagine. so can you get, the, get how I'm setting it up? You come from a sort of a critical background and you, you're not capable of doing anything, so you're worthless. And he said, so even if you don't uh, get unscrewed up, don't become a doctor, and don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness And you won't know it till you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. And so I'm just sobbing, like, what is he doing? He sees a future for me. I don't have to do anything. And he'd be proud to know me. What the heck is this about? Uh, and And then he says, look at me. And my eyes are just pouring. And he said, look at me. And he points his finger at me. And he said, yeah, you won't know how much the world needs it to are 35, but you have to make it to thirty 35 and you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. It's awesome. And so he, he set up an appeal, he set up an appeal, you know, and I guess I pleaded my case and the promotions committee, I had to meet with the promotions committee, but I guess they saw something in me that he did, but it changed everything. And so I went from being sarcastic and cynical, I still have you know, a crappy sense of humor sometimes, but I went, I went from being sarcastic and cynical into paying it forward. And so that's what I've done with my life. So that's part of, part of what i done, did as a suicide specialist, is I just recreated what the Dean of Students did for me. I just see goodness in people. I see their hurt. I, I'm proud to know who they are, independent of what they do. And I go to bat for them. I uh, I hang in there. I don't abandon them. And just like me, they start to cry. And when they start to cry, they start to feel relief. And when they start to feel relief, they start to feel a little bit of hope. So can you can you track with that, Ryan? Yeah,
0: I think that's wonderful. It's I very beautiful. They you know you, you have that impact. You're putting that out there. Go and there are people in our world that think differently. I guess there are a couple names you call them. Uh, my old teacher Stuart Wilde used to call them fringe dwellers. They're people who are existing in our reality, but yet not a part of it. They're just thinking completely different. Or as people in the mainstream media would call it, they would call them conspiracy theorists because they just have a different perception of reality. And I don't know. Maybe this is. Uh, crazy, but I feel like every person that ever came into our world that did something innovative, that did something creative, that did something that fundamentally changed perception of humanity or fundamentally changed our world as we know it is quote unquote crazy So, because they think so differently. So what I'm asking is how does a person know on internally if they are coming up with something If they are engaging in a stream of conscious or conscious thought or conscious actions which are quote-unquote crazy, which are completely outside the norm, which don't have any semblance of normality to our society in terms of helping society or being relevant to society. Or what if they are actually on a frequency that is pulling something into their experience which could revolutionize society, which could revolutionize the way we think about it. I'm wondering how do people know the difference, and you know how do they deal with the idea of deciding whether or not to express that knowledge, to express that information, even though it may be seen as uh, or mocked
1: by the collective society. Well, I think part of it is, um, I, I think it, I think you should share what you discover. Uh, look, uh, my approach the suicide prevention, you know, go, essentially, I mean, this is a little bit, you know, uh, out there. Uh, I go into the dark night of the soul. I didn't know that's what it was. Uh, uh, here, here, I'll give you a, a slightly surreal experience. And this, will, and this will characterize exactly what you're saying because my, my more traditional colleagues will say, oh, that was a dissociative episode, Mark. But I'll tell you what happened uh, and it changed. Uh, so here's, the, here's another event, because you asked me two events. So I used to see highly suicidal people who would made multiple attempts. And one of my earliest mentors after the dean of students was a fellow named Ed Schneidman. And if you look up Ed Schneidman, he is the pioneer in the field of suicide. And he would go see still suicidal patients up in the inpatient wards and Many of the resident doctors didn't want to see them uh, as outpatients because they were still suicidal. And so he'd go up and and he'd uh, meet with them. He'd put me on the phone. He'd call me. And uh, in order for them to be discharged, there had to be some person willing to see them. And the people inside didn't want to see them as outpatients because they, they weren't acutely suicidal, but they were suicidal. And so he'd refer these people to me. And one of them, which was probably one of the most suicidal people I'd seen, had tried, I think, three suicide attempts in the previous several years before I saw her. And she was in the hospital two to three months every year for several years. And I'll call her Nancy. And I was seeing Nancy, and I didn't think I was really helping her, except you know I was seeing her two or three times a week, and she wasn't killing herself. I just didn't think she was getting any better. And I used to moonlight once a month, which means I would go – cover for doctors at a state psychiatric hospital. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and sometimes when you moonlight, you're up for 36 hours. So I was up for 36 hours on a weekend. And it's a Monday. I come back and there's Nancy. And Nancy never made eye contact. And I'm a little bit, I guess, rigged out. And as I'm in the room with Nancy, and she never made eye contact. All the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out and the room is black and white. And then it gets cold and chilly. And I thought, oh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. Now I'm a medical doctor. She's not looking at me, so it's not rude. So I start tapping my knees, you know, looking at my fingers, you know, uh, seeing if I have double vision. I did a neurologic exam on myself to see if I was having a stroke or seizure. And I said, nope, I'm all here. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted this out. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad, and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I will miss you. Maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. I thought to myself, did I just say that or did I think that? And I realized, I just gave her permission to kill herself. I'm screwed. That was, time, that was the first time she looked at me, and I thought, oh. And I thought she was gonna say, thank you, thank you, I'm overdue. And I said, what do you, and she looked right into my eyes, and I, and, and I realized that I had gotten it right when she looked in my eyes. I said, what are you thinking, Nancy? And she looked right at me, and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself, to get out of all this pain, maybe I won't need to." And then she smiled. And then, and then I told her while we were making eye contact, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it right now as I'm saying it to you. I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm not gonna give you any advice, solutions or treatment because you're not gonna follow through on that anyway. Would that be okay? And I had her attention because she's had all kinds of treatments. And I said, what I'm going to do, and I looked right into her eyes, and I said, I'm going to find you wherever you are and just keep your company there. I'll keep your company there as long as it takes. And then, uh, you yeah, know, we'll see where it goes. So that's my model. That's my model. And I think to a certain extent, it's what the dean of students did. He saw something in me and he reached in. And he said, you're not going
0: anywhere. That's awesome that you you did that and you've looked at people individually. You look at them and you can examine, you know, have an idea of where they are. But if you look at nations, collectively speaking, you look at the world, collectively speaking, what do you perceive the world right now in terms of its state of mental health? Do you think that the world has got a opportunity to... I don't know collectively to come together that we can come together as one and be peaceful or do you perceive people and nations all across the world as of this moment kind of devolving or not utilizing all the capabilities that they have to be at their best, to become the freest that they are inside and to make every effort possible to bring the world together in a form of peace.
1: Boy, did you tee up what I'm about to say? Um, there's, there's a, a movement I would love to start, but I would need thousands to help. And it's called the Rising Tide. And what that means is it's the rising tide that lifts all hopes. I've traveled around the world. I, I taught empathy in Moscow to the Russian Federation, the most receptive audience I've ever spoken to. I can't get arrested in America teaching listening. Really, they just don't want to listen. But in Moscow, there's a highlight reel. If you look up Goulston, Moscow, YouTube, you'll see three minutes. And my idea is that 90% of the world wants the exact same thing. We want a future for our kids. We'd like some health care. It'd be nice to have a job that we can... Uh, you know, rely on, we'd like some safety from foreign and internal threat. 90, maybe 95% of the world wants the same thing. But the way the leaders of the world, especially uh, Putin, Trump and Kim Jong-un and others, one of the ways they lead is by dividing people against themselves. Abraham Lincoln said uh, a, what is it? a nation divided... House divided uh, cannot upon, uh, stand. stand. Cannot stand. And I think the policy of leaders who do not want to be held accountable for really not caring about the common population, if they can get, the, if they can get those 90% people who really want the same things to start being angry at each other, if you can get them fighting each other, those leaders... Can continue to lead, you know, uh, stealing away riches for themselves, and uh, and not being held accountable, because you're you're you're, and you know the psychological term. It's called splitting. You split people. You get them to fight one against the other, so they don't drill down and say, "What are you doing to help all of us?" So I would I, I would and the point is, you know, Facebook. Google, yeah. in six months, they could power this. They could be the foundation of the rising tide that lifts all hopes, and, just, and, and connect the 90% where, people, where we ask people, what is it that's most important to you? And you'll find out that 90% of the people want the same things. And, and if you can do that, and if the internet could be a vehicle for that, you could start ousting the leaders who you know are, are just trying to keep everybody divided so those leaders can keep conquering them. But that didn't answer your question, but that, that's, that's the answer oh, I gave
0: you. amazing. Dr. Mark Goldston, I want to thank you so much for being with us. and Mark is the number one best-selling author communication specialist. He's a psychiatrist, he's the author of seven books, Suicide, Suicide Prevention Specialist. 25 years, and none of his patients committed suicide. Clear more about Dr. Goulston by going to his website at markgoulston.com, and I'll spell that for you, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. Dr. Goulston, it was a great honor. Thank you for your time, sir.
1: Well, thank you for letting me tell these stories that had nothing to do with your questions. You were terrific. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our amazing guest, Dr. Mark Goulson. And special thanks, as always, to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show Virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Kaza, and Ms. Constance Dallas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening.